Ephesians chapter 4 today is where we're going to launch from and kind of a conclusion of Paul is making about holy living, about living for Christ. And I get questions, you know, about how can I, you know, have consistent victory over sin in my life or, you know, how can I, I you know, not find these temptations so uh, effective in, in getting me off track for living for Jesus. And, and uh, we want to address some of that today because I, you know, just living for Christ, not allowing the enemy to get you distracted or off track or, or entice you into temptation. And here's some, some things that uh, Paul is concluding. Now, you can see there in, in verse 25, we're going to read verse 25 through 27, uh, Paul is saying, therefore, so he's making a conclusion of an argument here that he's making about holy living. Ephesians 4, verse 25, he says, therefore, putting away lying. How many think that's important for living for Jesus? Amen? Okay, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. We belong to one another. We're in community together as Christians, believers. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. How many know that's a fine line, huh? Yeah, so, you know, anger is something that happens to us. Uh, we have really no control whether it happens to us or not. You know, sometimes we just feel the emotion of anger. And, but the important thing is, is that we bring uh, discipline to that. And uh, we don't allow anger to that so easily kind of points us in the direction of sin. Is that through the power of the Spirit, we can be angry and not sin. Nor do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So get things resolved quickly and move forward, move ahead. And then verse 27 is kind of where I want to focus on today. Nor give place to the devil. Give place to the devil. What an interesting thought for us today. You know, I think there are ways, that sometimes unwittingly, things we do or or say, or even practice in our lives that we don't realize gives place for the devil to do his work in our lives. I saw a friend uh, on Facebook, and they were kind of dismayed. They had made a, a new arrangement on their porch, right by their front door, and they'd set some things up, looked very nice, except one of the things had a nice, unknown to her, perch place, and uh, some bird was coming in there, and perching on her decorations and making quite a mess. <laughs> making quite a mess. She didn't know. She, she thought she was decorating, right? But what she was really doing was making a perch for a bird that liked to make a mess. And, uh, you know, sometimes we're like that. You know, things that we do in our lives would kind of set us up for failure when it comes to following Christ and living a holy life before him. And uh, there's several things that uh, I think are important for us to recognize. I don't know if you realize that it's so many things that cause us to stumble, and whether it's through anger or other ways that, that are really based in fear. Anger is really not a thing in and of itself. It is a product of fear. And if we're really angry about something, it's usually attached to a fear that we have. And, you know, if we d do a little bit of drilling down into that, we can see, you know, that maybe we express anger over something that we are afraid will happen, okay? And, and uh, or, you know, we're fearful that, you know, something 
that we don't want is going to take place. And so we have to understand, you know, that Satan can use our fears in ways that entice us into sin. And when we give in to fear, even unimportant things, we give the devil a foothold in our lives. It gives him an opportunity to bring attack uh, against us. Now, one of the things that I think is important, we sometimes, you know, we'll confess our fears and uh, we'll talk about our fears out loud and uh, we begin to believe our fears. It's a process. We begin to confess those fears. We begin to believe those fears. And then finally, we begin, begin to experience our fear. Now, I don't know if you realize this, that the things that we fear and the things that happen, there's a pathway to that. There's, there's an attachment there that is important for us to understand that spiritual dynamic. This is interesting. This is found in the book of Job. We're going to set this up for just a minute. Is that if you have read the book of Job, you, uh, you know that the, the bulk of the book is dealing with Job's suffering, okay? But how did that suffering commence? How did that start? Well, you know, God was proud of his servant Job. And I don't know how these things happen, but the book opens is that God and Satan were having a conversation. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? As he's upright and has integrity in all things, I'm very proud of him. Now, wouldn't you like for God to, to say that about you? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Is that he is a righteous man. And of course, Satan had a counter for that. He says, well, that's because you protect him. And, and you know, if, if uh, something bad happened to Job, you know, he'd turn on you. He would curse you to your face. And, you know, no wonder he's, you know, as blessed as he is because you won't allow me to touch him. And so, you know, that wager was set up between God and Satan and, and Satan did afflict him. And the Bible tells us that Job lost almost everything. Uh, his children and, you know, and family. He lost his uh, wealth, you know, camels and herds and all of these things. It all came crashing down in a single day. And this is what Job said in Job chapter 3 and verse 25. He says, For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. How many have ever said something similar to that, right? Yeah, you say, I was afraid that was going to happen. I mean, you know, we say those things. I was afraid of that, you know. Well, we fail to see sometimes that there is a connection between the fears that we confess and the things that we fear happening. Sometimes we open the door for that. Sometimes it is a foothold. And how, how so? How does that happen? How did, how did Satan know where to attack Job? Now, I want, to, I want to tell you something. Satan is not omniscient, okay? Satan does not share the attributes of God. God is omniscient, and uh, that word means that he knows everything. There is nothing that God does not know. He knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings. He knows everything about you. Jesus said he even can number the hairs of your head. That's knowledge we don't even have about ourselves. But God knows it. There's nothing that God doesn't know. But Satan is not omniscient, okay? He doesn't share any of those attributes of God. He is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. What is that? God is all-powerful, but Satan is not all-powerful. God is omnipresent. That means that God is everywhere at once, and Satan is not everywhere at once. He does not share those attributes of God. So it's important for us to understand this, is that Satan is not omniscient. He does not know our thoughts. 
you know, is it coincidental here that Satan chose the very area that, that was fearful to attack him? I don't think so. I think the things that we confess now, Satan may not be omniscient or all-knowing, but Satan is a very good listener and observes details, and he's taking notes. When we give in to our fear, the first thing we begin to do is to confess it. Like I said, Satan is taking notes. And uh, how is it that he attacks us in that very area that we fear? Well, it's usually because we inform him of the places that we are fearful of. We confess our fears. We talk about our fears. We talk about our fears to other people. We, uh, you know, have all this kind of stuff. I was, I was waiting in line the other day. My wife and I were at the health fair waiting to get our blood drawn. And, you know, that's not a good place for me. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, so I'm, I'm keeping it together and listening. But, you know, there's a lady behind me talking quite loudly about how afraid she is, you know, of this, you know, experience. And, and she's talking loudly to the lady behind her. And, you know, she has so many problems with the blood draw and on and on and on. And, you know, I think I want to turn around and say, you know what, you're not helping me at all here. You're not, you're not helping me at all. And uh, a couple of health fairs ago, you were there, yes. And, and you knew what happened, right? Yeah, I, I was walking out and in a very crowded hallway, <laughs> people on lines on both sides, I just blacked out completely. <laughs> right in the mid. The last thing I remember hearing is, Pastor Brown! <laughs> I don't know who said that. <laughs> so that, that's my situation walking into those things. But listening to all that did not help me at all. I just wanted to turn around and say, you know, could you talk quieter or maybe don't share that kind of information? But anyways, we begin to confess our fears and uh, Satan capitalizes on those things. And so how do, we, how do we not confess our fears? Well, I think it's important that we practice the peace of God. And how do we do that? In the verse we've been kind of theming around here for several weeks is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And it says, be anxious for nothing. Okay, don't worry about anything. But in everything, this is how we conquer anxiety. This is how we conquer fear. You know, I hear so much about, you know, people having terrible anxiety it seems to be a thing these days, and I'm not making light of it, but, you know, just I think it speaks to the day in which we live, you know, anxiety attacks or, you know, feeling anxiety. And, and Philippians 4, I think, speaks right to where we're living today. Be anxious for nothing. How do we attack that? How do we come against that anxiety that wants to grip us? But in everything by prayer and supplication, prayer and, and presenting our needs before the Lord, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So God invites us in. He invites us to come and pray and present our needs uh, to him. And let your requests be made known to God. And here's the result. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We could turn this into an equation if we, if we wanted to today. It could be prayer plus thanksgiving equals peace. And that's how we deal with our fears. Instead of confessing our fears, talking about our fears, throwing our fears out there where Satan can take notes and, and uh, know exactly where we are weak and the thing that we're fearful of, we can just by prayer supplication, presenting our needs, with thanksgiving, with a, the right attitude of our heart, present our needs to God. And the result is, is that the peace of God, which passes 
surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's powerful for us. And frankly, it's not just a switch we turn on and off. It's something we develop. It's something that uh, we strengthen with, with use and with practice and, and make it part of our response to things that worry us. You know, the peace and, and presence of God comes when my trust in him, I, you know, this, this is a quotable. If I was going to tweet today, I would tweet that. But I don't tweet, so I'm not going to do it. But here's something that you can write down is that the peace and presence of God comes when my trust in him exceeds my fears. Amen. So the peace of God comes, the presence of God comes, when my trust in him exceeds my fears. And that's, that's done through relationship with Jesus. And part of that is that, that relationship through prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, and all of a sudden our, our fears become manageable. We must learn to believe God and, uh, you know, a great man of God that was a mentor of mine for many years said this, you need to learn to doubt your doubts. Think about that for a minute, okay? You need to doubt your doubts. Don't doubt the truth, doubt your doubts. And uh, we can begin to build up that, that faith that was in us, uh, that is in us uh, by relationship with Christ in our lives. Another thing I think is important for us, you know, so there's a foothold of fear that we can make place for the devil to work in our lives. The second thought I have is the foothold of sin, you know. There are times where we want to just kind of uh, preserve certain little sins in, you know, in our lives. You know, make, you know, a little spots I shared in the first service uh, this morning. You know, I remember stepping on the scale one morning and a number I did not want to see. I'd never seen that number before. You know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, I decided I have to do something about this. And, uh, you know, so I resolved that I was going to be more disciplined. Except I sabotaged myself right from the start. Because, you know, out in, out in the garage where I like to go in the evening and, and, you know, work, change oil in the cars or, you know, make this or that or clean something up. Out in my garage, I had a secret place, a little drawer, you know what I'm talking about. And that was not for tools, it was not for anything but my Snickers bars, okay? You know what that's called? That's called making provision for the flesh. <laughs> so I'd resolved, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more disciplined, I'm going to, you know, eat better, eat better things, but, you know, just in case I get hungry, guess what, I'm, I'm going I'm to have this little place over here that I can always go to and, and uh, find, you know, that snicker bar that I like, you know, I love and, and all of that. And, you know, interesting enough, that's called plan B. You, you know what I'm talking about? Plan B. Plan A, what's plan A? Well, you know, plan A is I'm going to lose weight. You know, plan A is I'm going to get more discipline. Plan A is that I'm going to live right, you know. Plan B is, okay, well, not just this one time I'm going to not do that, right? Anytime there's a plan B in our lives... We tend to exercise plan B. The key is to not have plan B, is to only have plan A. That is true in so many places in our lives, you know. You know, everybody, you know, thinks, well, it's smart to have plan B. Well, only if you want to fail at plan A, okay? Plan A, it, it works so many places in our life. When I gave my life to Christ, I only have plan A. And that's to live for Jesus every day of my life. Okay? That's the plan A that was made this morning with these young men who were baptized in water. So I asked the question, are you going to live for Jesus for the rest of your life? And the answer is yes. 
That's plan A. Plan B is, well, if that doesn't work out, I'll do something else. You know what? Plan A is the only plan. If you want to fail, create plan B, because you will fail and you will exercise plan B. If plan A seems to be failing, then go back to plan A. You know, when I tell people who are contemplating getting married, I say, you know, if you want to be married for the rest of your life, have only one plan. Have only plan A. If you have plan B, which is anything else but staying married for the rest of your natural life, you will exercise plan B at some point. So you're setting yourself up for failure. And, and that's what making, you know, provision for the flesh is all about. It is planning our failure. It is making provision for Satan to have a foothold in our lives. And if we want to fail, then, then we just create, you know, that, that little drawer that has, you know, our failure inside of it. Something that we forget to realize is that when we step into God's kingdom is that we no longer belong to Satan's kingdom. It's not part of us anymore. And we must make a, a clean break. We can't allow, you know, our favorite little things to follow us into our relationship with Christ because it will not work. It's like trying to, to stay on plan A when plan B is saying, hey, I'm here. <laughs> and we tend to do that. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, verses uh, 8 through 11. Paul explains it very well here. He says, for, for you were once darkness. Okay, at one point, you, you belonged to the kingdom of darkness. Sin was a natural way of life to you. But now you are light in the Lord. So now we are to walk as children of light. So we are, we are part of the kingdom of light. Belongs to God. And for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. How do we do that? How do we find out what's acceptable to the Lord? Well, that's, I think, where the, the Word of God comes in. Because as we read the Word of God, we find out what pleases God. We find out the things that don't please God. We look into the Word of God, and there's stories about how uh, God blessed certain people because their ways pleased Him. And if we were to follow in like suit, that God would be pleased with us. And there are things in there where, where uh, people in Scripture who disobeyed God. And because of that, they, they forfeited God's blessing in their life. And if we do those things, we too will forfeit God's blessing in our lives. And so that's how we find out what is acceptable to the Lord. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. So finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So instead of having secret places of sin in our lives, secret places where plan B is stored, instead of, of keeping those places secret, we begin to expose those places in our lives and open them up to the light of God's truth and, you know, if we want to stay in this relationship with Christ and, uh, as I said, have only one plan, and that is to serve him every day for the rest of your life and make no provision for the flesh. Our work now, so, is to expose the hidden works of darkness. And the reason for this is that because if we hide the works of darkness in ourselves, we have much to fear, and, and Satan can still claim ownership where he basically has a welcome mat in our lives. There's a story that was told by one of our missionaries. 
that I heard and I thought, boy, this is really an interesting illustration of how this dynamic and how this spiritual principle works in our lives. And uh, he was a missionary in Africa and had all the kind of African names of which have escaped me uh, these many years later. But he told a story that in a certain village, it was a beautiful little village, and uh, there was a, a particular home that that you know uh, was was coveted and gentlemen had lived there for many years and you know it was kind of right in the the path where you know the people in the village walked every day and he could visit and and it was convenient to the center of the village and water there was water in the village and and uh, so it was just kind of like the perfect place to live in that village and finally one of the residents of the same village came to this man and said i would like to buy your home and the man said, I, I'm not interested in selling my home. And uh, so the man went away, but he came back another day. And again, I, I would really love to buy your home. And over time, began to kind of pester the man about selling his home. And uh, each time the answer was no, 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 no. But uh, finally, there came a day where the man really put pressure on him and offered him a, a very good price for the home, the sale of the home. And the man said, well, I will sell you my house on this one condition, is that I can put a nail in the back of your door, the front door of the house, that will be mine. You can have the rest of the house, but that one nail in the back of the door will belong to me. Well, the man was so excited that he had finally relented and agreed to sell him the house, and he thought, well, what... What kind of harm can one nail be in the house? And he says, you can never pull it out. It has to remain there. And he says, yes, yes, I agree. They sold the house. The man uh, paid him a, a large sum for the home. And he began to enjoy the, his new home and where he was living, all the advantages of that house. And the nail was kind of forgotten. It was just kind of back there. And uh, so as time goes on, one day, as is, uh, happens in African villages. You know, there, there are village dogs and, and uh, they roam, they don't really belong to anybody and they scavenge for life. And, and one, one of those village dogs finally perished and, and passed away right in the middle of the street. And uh, since the dog didn't belong to anybody, nobody dealt with it. And uh, they're in the African heat and all of that, you know, the processes of decay began, all right? And so here's this dead animal in the end of the street, and nobody was dealing with it. And finally, the man who had originally owned the home that had sold it came by. And he took hold of the dead dog and walked up to the front door of the house and set the dog down and knocked on the door. Well, the new owner of the house greeted him. Oh, my friend. And, and it, it, what is that terrible, terrible odor? And uh, there was the dead dog. And he says, why have you brought this thing to my front house? He says, oh. He says, I want to exercise my right of ownership of the nail. And the man looked at him and thought, what could this mean? What could this be? So the previous owner picked up the dead dog and hung it on the nail on the inside of the house. Well, that was outrage. And he protested. He said, no, this nail belongs to me. You agreed that this nail would be mine belongs to me, and I choose to hang this dead dog on the nail. Well, that, you know, wasn't going to happen. It filled the house with, with a terrible odor, and, and things just got worse. 
And uh, pretty soon they called for the elders of the village to come together and discuss this thing. And, and in the, the man that uh, was being offended by this dead dog being in his home uh, poured out his complaint to the village elders and, and uh, they questioned the man who had hung the dead dog on the nail and, and asked him and he said, well, this nail belongs to me. He agreed to it. Did, it. did you agree to the nail in the back of the door? Yes, I did. That it belongs to me and not to you. Yes, I did. And he says, and I choose to leave the dead dog on the nail. Well, this just became, the elders said, you know, what can we say? You agreed to the deal, and the nail belongs to him. What he does with it is up to him. And so this became intolerable, and, and as I said, things just got worse, and, and to the point where the man could not even live in his home. And finally, he approached the man who had the ownership of the nail in the, in the door, and he said, would you like to buy your house back? If you're going to hang this dead dog in the house, I don't want the house anymore. Would you like to buy it back? Expecting that the man would give him a, a similar sum to what he paid for the house. And the man said, I would love to buy my house back. And he says, well, let's drop a deal. He says, but I'm not going to pay what you paid for it. And offered him far less money for the house. And the man was hurt and offended and walked away, but... He couldn't go home, he couldn't go in the house, it was unlivable, and, and uh, he pleaded and, and uh, asked the man, would you, would you just buy the house back? And he kept naming the, the price of pittance for what the house was worth. And finally the man gave in and sold the house back at a cheap price because he had given the ownership of the nail in the back of the door. And that's what making provision for the flesh is all about. <laughs> when we turn our lives over to Christ, when we ask him for the forgiveness of our sin, we have to make a clean break with works of darkness. We can't make provision for the flesh. We can't, you know, save that one favorite sin for, you know, those times that, you know, where it doesn't matter and, you know, we kind of like this and all. Because someday the owner of the nail will return and the consequences will be great, and the consequences will be ugly, and you will sell out cheaply. That's what sin does. If we're going to live for Christ, it is, it is too, uh, important for us that we no longer allow these places in our lives where Satan continues ownership. Romans 13, 14 says this, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Great verse of scripture for us. Psalm 101 and verse 3 says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. So we have to say goodbye to things that, if we're honest about, we really like that are not of God. We just kind of keep them around because, you know, well, those are our favorite sins. When God says, you know what, you need to make a clean break. Make no deals with the devil. Don't make a foothold for him in your life where he can harass you, where he can cause you pain, where he can cause you trouble. Allow yourself to be completely uh, given over to the Lord. Third foothold that uh, I want to address uh, today is the foothold of disobedience. And, uh, you know, uh, we all disobey, but uh, there are, I think, situations and times where we knowingly disobey, and we make that choice. We know this is wrong, 
but I'm going to choose to do it anyway. And that has consequences that I think we don't want in our lives. Story of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel is a book that, that contains the story of, of Saul, who's crowned the first king of Israel. And Saul had some great advantages. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. Everybody just naturally looked to him as the leader. He was a natural selection as a king. And, uh, you know, leadership is what the people wanted him to have. He had some natural giftings and abilities and talents. And unfortunately, he did not have the character to support it. And all of King's, or King Saul's advantages were external. They were easy to see. They were easy to observe. People were attracted to his gifted and talented um, abilities, and um, he was even good to, to look at. Those kinds of qualities cannot make up a lack of character by religious activity or apologies. And King Saul tried to live on both sides of that, but God rejected him. King Saul was given a commandment to wait for the high priest to give offer sacrifices before the people went to war. And as if you know the story, you're familiar with the story, uh, Samuel, who was the, the, the priest, was late. And uh, Saul was afraid of losing uh, the favor of the people. And so King Saul, instead of the high priest, there's another lesson in there about separation of church and state when it comes to spiritual authority. But uh, King Saul stepped into the place of the high priest and offered the sacrifice. And as soon as he offered the sacrifice, Samuel arrived. And he gave excuses and, and had not told the truth about what he had done. And Samuel proceeds to inform him that God had rejected him as king and, and his posterity would not follow him on the throne of Israel, but God would choose a man after his own heart, King David, uh, who was to come to replace Saul for his disobedience. And here it is, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And the kingdom was removed from Saul and his dynasty. And sometimes we make those same kind of deals. So we just think, you know what? I know this is wrong. I know what I'm supposed to do. But you know what? I'm just going to do it anyways. Maybe there's pressure on us. Maybe there's just some uh, desire uh, on our part to do what is not right. And we go ahead and do it. And we think that somehow we are going to make up in other ways. Conditional obedience is not obedience at all. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. Saul said, you know, he was supposed to kill all the, the animals that belonged to their enemies and destroy everything. And, and, and Saul, you know, began to make excuses and say, well, I saved the best animals so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. I mean, doesn't that sound like a great thing? But that's not what he was instructed to do. He was instructed to destroy everything, including all of the animals. And so he kind of made a deal to accommodate his own desires and have favor with, with the people. And so the kingdom was removed from him. So many times, you know, we, we see something we want so badly, but the path to get it is in the wrong direction. And we think, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and do this anyway, but I'll make up for it. I'll finally say yes to them asking me to help at church. I'll, uh, I'll give an extra offering. 
or I'll do something nice for somebody. And we think, you know, I know this isn't right, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, but I'll just make up for it anyway. That is not a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And if we want to, to live for Christ every day of our lives, it means doing what is right and obeying the voice of the Lord. And uh, with his, the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, we will find success in that today. So I just want to encourage you in your walk with Christ. You know, there's not one of us that, that lives a perfect, error-free life. But as we go and as we grow and as we find out what pleases the Lord, we begin to, to uh, adjust our choices and adjust our, our uh, life and our trajectory so that we can begin to just comply with, with the things that God is requiring of us and calling us out and things to live in ways that are more accurate, more complete to following him. I want us to consider today, perhaps there are some areas, a foothold for the enemy, and maybe, maybe a plan B or two in there somewhere, or maybe there's just some fears that, that we face that cause us to not follow after Christ as we should today. I want you to just allow the Holy Spirit to find those, point them out to you, and, and expose them so that we can just say, you know, today I want to make a new commitment to following Christ. I'm going to stop making provision for the flesh. I'm going to stop, you know, hiding sin in my life. I'm not going to make deals with the devil anymore. I'm not going to willfully disobey what God has called me to because I want to live for Christ. Because not only is it better in this life, but we have the promise of eternal life to come. That's our hope. We celebrated Resurrection Sunday last week and and that's what that is all about. Let's not jeopardize it by making place for the devil in our lives. Would you bow your heads with me, Heavenly Father? In this moment, your Holy Spirit has no boundaries that he can't penetrate, Lord. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows our secret plans. And Holy Spirit, you are so faithful point those out and offer us a chance to reject sin and to choose Jesus. And Lord, I pray today, Lord, wherever we may have hidden something, that Lord, just maybe we don't bring it out very often, but Lord, it's there. And we just have to say, you know what? I need to surrender this to Christ, to his lordship in my life, not give place to the enemy anymore because he's so easily defeats me in this area. So Lord, I pray today, cross this place in your presence. Say, Jesus, I want to come clean. I've been making provision for the flesh. I've been willfully disobeying what I know is right. I've been caving in to my fears and it causes me to sin. And I pray today, Lord, would you just change all of that today? I reject all of those things that Satan uses against me that I have allowed that I have participated in, and I ask you to make me clean, new start. And Lord, when I'm weak, I can be strong through Christ Jesus, through the Spirit of God who works in my heart and life, that I can reject sin and accept Christ. Lord, we pray today in the name of Jesus. Amen.